Today, I sit down with Joseph Anfuso, the founder and president of a Christ-centered relief and development organization called Forward Edge that Joseph founded after a remarkable trip literally around the world to the Himalayas, uh, Nepal, a Tibetan Buddhist monastery, Istanbul, Germany, London, and a number of other places in between. He has probably the most incredible story of self-discovery, but even more than that, really a story of uncovering God's purpose for his life that I have ever heard. And he is here to share that with us today and also share insights on um, what his organization, Forward Edge, is doing in the world today. You are listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Pursuit of Purpose. Uh, my name is Chris Kiefer, and today I have an amazing uh, man joining me. His name is Joseph Anfuso, and he is the founder and president of Forward Edge International. And um, Joe, why don't I just let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Forward Edge and, um, and what that organization is. Okay. Yeah. Forward Edge is a, a Christ-centered relief and development organization. Uh, we're based in uh, Vancouver, Washington, and we uh, have programs for vulnerable children in several countries in Central America, the Caribbean, as well as Kenya. And we also mobilize hundreds of short-term volunteers every year from across the country to travel to those locations and, and support those programs. And we have hundreds of uh, uh, people that sponsor the children in the programs on a monthly basis. Uh, we were founded in 1983, so this is our 35th year of ministry. That's awesome. And so there, there's a Joe had um, just published a... Um, or I guess this, I don't know, how long ago did you publish the message, the message uh, that's in a body book? 2010. Uh, okay, I've, so, I've written another book since then, but that's the when Message in a Body was published, yeah. Okay, so for anyone that is interested, and you may be more interested after hearing um, the pieces of his story today, but Message in a Body is um, pretty much the full um, explanation and story of how Joe got to where he is today. Um, but because it is uh, 240 pages, Joe, could you give everyone a, a quick synopsis of, and I, I think actually in the last chapter of the book, you mentioned that you had to do this um, as a, like a little sermon, um, so you can give your, your short uh, synopsis, and we can dive into certain parts of it later, but tell everyone, how, how did you end up from the son of a... Um, congressman right u.s yeah u.s congressman uh -huh. to now you know traveling the world and um helping people hear god's calling in their life well it is it is a long story um and i i was born in brooklyn my my dad served in congress for five terms representing uh the eighth district in brooklyn later became a justice of the new york state supreme court uh he was a very strong personality had actually immigrated to the U.S. when he was nine years old from Italy. Uh, so he came here as an immigrant, worked his way through law school, ended up becoming a lawyer, and then serving 
in World War II behind enemy lines as a member of the OSS, which is the precursor of the CIA, uh, returned to the States, ran for Congress. So very interesting life. Uh, and uh, um, one of my, and this all, this all kind of relates to my, my journey, but one of my early experiences, I was probably 12 years old. My dad had just left Congress, brought all of these uh, black and white photographs that had been hanging in his office in Washington, D.C., back to our home and uh, asked my twin brother, and I have a twin brother, a fraternal twin brother, to hang these photos on the walls of our den of our home. And I remember sitting there at 12 years old looking at these pictures of my dad with uh, uh, different heads of state, the president of Italy, president of Ireland, David Ben-Gurion, president of Israel, two popes, uh, President Truman, President Eisenhower, President it's basically Kennedy. just everyday people <laughs> that you come across. Yeah, <laughs> right. So if you can imagine me sitting there, you know, with these photos in my lap, 12-year-old boy, and uh, just feeling kind of this weight of uh, expectation that in some way, you know, I, I needed to live up to my dad, you know, that I had to have a life that uh, had significance. I needed to make my mark. Uh, so... Uh, in my younger years, I was quite performance oriented, at the same time struggling with a lot of insecurities. You know, do I have what it takes, you know, to uh, make the kind of impact that my dad made? So anyway, uh, I uh, ended up uh, being on a kind of conveyor belt to law school. My dad was a lawyer. My older brother was a lawyer. I was always told I was going to be a lawyer and uh, just kind of moved forward through school with that expectation I ended up uh, that my father uh, died suddenly of a heart attack when I was 17 years old, my freshman year of college. And uh, uh, I, I continued on though, uh, after he passed away, and I, I'm, I'm leaving out a whole lot of details, Chris, but mm -hmm. uh, I continued on with the assumption I was going to go to law school, become a lawyer. And then I ended up in London in 1969 as an exchange student. And uh, it was really my fo first exposure to the, the larger world outside the United States and, and uh, was living there in London with several exchange students. I took the law boards in London and I did well. I had a good GPA. And I remember sitting in my flat uh, looking at these applications for law school on the floor of my flat trying to decide whether to fill them out and send them in. And I realized at that point in my life that I... I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I didn't really have a passion or a strong desire to be a lawyer. Didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, I think if my dad had lived, I, I probably would have become a lawyer because <laughs> he was a pretty uh, strong personality. Uh, and I, I would have wanted to please him, I think. But, but that was not in my life. That pressure wasn't there anymore. So I ended up spending the next, uh, the better part of four years traveling around the world. Now, I had grown up uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, I actually went to uh, Catholic schools right through high school and even Catholic boarding schools uh, from the seventh to the 12th grade. First on Long Island for the seventh and eighth grade and then in the Bronx uh, through high school. So this is, you know, we're living there and all boys, Catholic school, and I was hearing a lot about God and Jesus. And, uh, but by the time I left high school, uh, 
I really turned my back on on uh, the church and Christianity. I I didn't feel that I had found anything that really was relevant to my life. And ended up in college and in New Jersey. I went to Rutgers and and uh, so here I am, uh, just out of college, not sure what I want to do with my life, um, and uh, I ended up going back to Europe and riding a motorcycle from Athens to London, all the way across Europe with a couple of guys, came back to the States, ended up in California, uh, worked on a ship in the Pacific as a member of the crew. Uh, this I'm really fast forwarding through years of time here, but uh, ended up going overland to India. So uh, flew to, to Europe, to Germany, and took the Istanbul Express, from Munich to Istanbul, a boat across the Black Sea, public buses across Afghanistan, which I don't recommend. Uh, and uh, I got a ride in a, a Volkswagen van through the Khyber Pass across Pakistan and in, into India. Ended up spending a year and a half in India and Nepal. This is the early 1970s. And uh, part of the reason to go to India was I had become interested in spiritual things and I, I felt like, well, I, I know about Christianity. I went to these Catholic boarding schools for years, kind of been there, done that. And, uh, but I wanted to find some kind of spiritual uh, answer for my life. I realized that I needed that. And uh, so I'd become interested in Eastern religions. And part of what I experienced when I was in India and Nepal, it wasn't the only thing, but uh, I did spend time at a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. I studied with a a Burmese guru, a Buddhist guru, um, and learned different meditation techniques. So I was really seeking, you know, for some spiritual path, some spiritual answer for my life. Uh, after a year and a half in India and Nepal, I, I ended up coming back to New York to discover that everyone else in my family, starting with my twin brother, had become wholehearted followers of Jesus. And they were reading the Bible and telling me about Jesus. And it took me off guard. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, I ended up reading the Bible for the first time. I never had read the Bible. You know, we went through catechism, you know, as a, in, in school, uh, but never sat down and read the New Testament or the Bible. So for the very first time, I read the New Testament, uh, different books in the Old Testament as well. And, uh, you know, I'm leaving out a whole lot of details, but after several weeks in New York, I met some other Christ followers there in New York at the time. I surrendered my life to Christ. This was 1974. I was 24 years old and became part of a church planting ministry. So the, this was a ministry that was sending teams of people to plant churches, different parts of the U.S., Europe, Latin America. And that was about, you know, 44 years ago now, just about. And uh, about 10 years into my uh, uh, Christian life, uh, I, I had a uh, experience when I was in Guatemala working on a book project where I had this, not a vision, like a, I visualized something, but I, uh, I began to uh, believe that God was calling me to mobilize people on short-term mission trips. Uh, we already had this network of churches in the U.S. and Europe and Latin America, people that were my friends. Uh, both nationals and, and uh, missionaries. And so I was in a good position to organize these 
these uh, short-term trips, 10 days to two weeks. And I just was doing it on the side. First team that we sent was in 1983. And then it grew gradually over time and eventually transitioned from a short-term mission agency into, a, as I said, a Christian relief and development organization with our own programs with staff in other countries, over 60 staff in uh, Nicaragua, Mexico, Haiti, Cuba, and Kenya. And then we still send hundreds of people on short-term volunteer teams every year as well to support those programs. So that's kind of a nutshell of my story. And that was, so just to give the outsider's perspective on your story, um, after finishing your book, it literally seems like a, like a Hollywood um, fictional story of some of the things that you um, experienced. And, and I was actually talking with my wife about this, and this is just kind of a more um, practical question, but I guess I'm, I'm wondering, do you, like the, I don't know where, where do you think your confidence um, or maybe it wasn't confidence, just a lack of caring, but where did that come from to basically, and I'm going to paraphrase this in my own words, but it was like, I live in New York. I want to go to California. I guess I better hitchhike across America or I need to get across the ocean. I guess I can join uh, this, you know, uh, sea crew on this boat and work and get across, you know, like there's, there's so many times where it seemed like there was a there wasn't a lot of um, thinking, and, and I guess the answer was because there didn't need to be potentially. Yeah, well, I think one thing that uh, has been true in my life and the people that know me best, including my twin brother, my family, my wife, and friends, you know, I've, I've never um, fear has has never been a controlling factor in my life. I've always been something of a risk taker. Uh, and um, that's one factor, I think, in all of that. And also it was the, the time in, in our country when there were a lot of young people like myself that were seeking and traveling and kind of turning their backs on, on uh, conventional lifestyles. You know, they called it the counterculture <laughs> for a reason, you know, the, People were looking, young people were looking for answers and hitchhiking was much more common then than it is now. I think the riskiest journey I went on was going overland to India because I landed in India, I landed rather in Germany with $300 total, that's all the money I had and uh, was able to get all the way to India and live there for a while. Uh, you know, $300 then would maybe be a thousand now, but uh, the other the other thing I had to be willing to do was, you know, travel fourth class, <laughs> you know, it was uh, very rustic, you know, all the different hostels I stayed in going overland to India, you know, living in very simple uh, places in Nepal and in India where you, and you could live on a dollar a day, literally, you know, and, and at that time in those countries. And, and I, did, I just took odd jobs, you know, when I was traveling. Uh, do this, this or that, this or that to make a little bit of money to keep going. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. I remember one of the things you mentioned in Hawaii. You you were carved or like whittled away at shark teeth. Uh, whales teeth. Yes. Whales teeth. Yes. How how did you guys come across that as a solution to bring in <laughs> revenue? 
Well, it, you know, there were a lot of whale seats available. We were on Maui. This would have been 1970, and it was called Scrimshaw. So you they, you can still, you know, go to Maui, the islands in Hawaii and other places as well, and see these carved whale's teeth. And sometimes it'll be a, a masted ship or, you know, uh, you know, whaling boats with a whale, you know, coming out of the ocean. Uh, so it wasn't really, you didn't have to be, a, you know, Michelangelo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to do one of these. You could do a fairly basic, you know, drawing and then etch it in, etch in there with the right tool and put ink in it and, and, uh, and sell it, you know, for, you know, 40 or 50 bucks. And if you did enough of them, you know, you could get by. So then if I guess the question I have, you mentioned that this was during a time when there was a lot of people doing this. Do you think that a, you know, 23 year old today could have a similar experience? Um, or would you would you recommend that? Uh, well, you know, I, don't, I actually don't think you could have a similar experience. And I, I don't know. Uh, I think it's hard for young people today to understand how big the world used to be not that long ago. I mean, when I was traveling in those days, there were no cell phones, there was no internet, there was no cable television. Uh, when you were in Afghanistan, you were in Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, you, you couldn't just pick up the phone or send an email to somebody. Nobody knew where you were. You couldn't communicate with anybody else. Um, so it was a different kind of traveling back then. You know, the world was just a lot bigger. It, it felt bigger. And and now it's it's really much more common for young people to, to travel. I'm, I'm amazed at, you know, college students, sometimes even high school students that are, you know, going to Cambodia and Vietnam and sometimes multiple times. And uh, but it, that's a different it's a different time right now. Um, when I was in, uh, in Nepal, for example, trekking in the Himalayas, I, I went to the base camp of Mount Everest, which is 10 days hiking in one direction. And at the time, the only place you could stay was with people along the way. So you just knock on a door in some village and they'd let you stay there and sleep on the floor and eat whatever they ate. And you gave them a dollar, you know, now, and this is, you know, 45 years later or more than that. There's hostels and restaurants and <laughs> all oh, of wow. these all along the trail. So it's, a, it's just a different thing. But as far as recommending travel, yes, I think it's very beneficial, for, especially for people here in the U.S. You know, we, we tend to be more isolated, at least historically. We're separated by both oceans. And, and uh, uh, w you know, we can be pretty uh, um, parochial, I guess is the word. In our in our worldview, and we're not as exposed to different cultures, and and so as as certainly as people in Europe, for example, where many people speak multiple languages, and you can easily cross from one country to another, and and so for people in the United States to get out of the United States and see other countries, you know, be exposed to other cultures, meet different people, uh, I think is very beneficial in broadening your worldview. What I recommend you know, obviously, given what I do, uh, is that people go when they travel with some purpose, uh, that they can go and, and, and with the idea of giving and serving, 
that's what we do all, every year is we we send people on these missions uh, where they they have an assignment they have a specific way that they're going to be a blessing to the, their hosts in that place uh, and but really a, a lot of what happens is they're they're learning you know they're they're going to give but they end up receiving more than they gave you know because they're having this amazing opportunity to meet people they'd never otherwise meet and and uh, just grow in, in their worldview. But so I, would, I wouldn't necessarily recommend, hey, just go travel, you know, the way I did in my, you know, pre-Christian life. But if definitely travel, but if you can go somewhere on mission, you know, where you're, you're going to give and you have a purpose, I think that's, that's a great way to travel. Because that's one thing I was going to say is you, um, you mentioned on, it was towards the end of the book that, um, even though you thought thought of yourself as someone that was a seeker, you were out looking and trying to discover, you realized that God was seeking you the whole time. And I think that whether or not someone is Christian or any religion, I, I do think that there's a lot of, um, it seems like there's a lot of uh, atheists in today's world, especially I know a lot of people that I know um, have were raised in Christian or Catholic or you know some organized religion and there's a lot of people that are not practicing anything um, and I think that uh, I just I think that one thing that everyone can relate to is that idea of trying seeking fulfillment and purpose and joy and happiness um, which I think your story you know, definitely does a good job of um, capturing and kind of the restlessness that you experienced. But I guess my thought is, in your, when you're talking to people nowadays that are um, in a similar place that you were in, like you're saying, yes, go travel, do, if you can, go with the purpose. Um, do you think that when you were younger, had there been an organization like Forward Edge, you would have taken someone up on that? Um, no. <laughs> and when I was saying, you know, I encourage people to travel, you know, with a purpose, I wasn't necessarily thinking of the folks that you're, uh, referring to, although we do have people that go on our teams that are not believers, you know, they're not people that are people of faith, but there are a small, smaller number of people that are interested in going on our, our trips. Um, you know, I think I would not have considered doing that. I was very self-centered person at the time, and I, I, everything revolved around me. You know, what did I need to do? What could I possibly do to meet my deepest needs? And so I was, I was trying to figure it out for myself. You know, I was the center of the universe, and uh, uh, you know, trying to come up with my own. Uh, plan, you know, based on my own understanding. And uh, I finally reached the point where I realized that I hadn't really found what I was looking for. If I was honest, you know, I, I remember um, I was hiking uh, in the Himalayas and I'd gone to the base camp of Everest. So this was back when only 22 people had summited Everest at this point in history. Now there's over 8,000 that have summited. And when I went there, I hiked there with a couple of friends and, and we were supposed to, on the last day of this trek, 
to to the actual base camp. We were supposed to take in uh, wood so that we could spend the night in a kind of lean-to shelter there at base camp. And we ended up leaving early in the morning. We didn't bring our sleeping bags. We didn't bring a tent. We didn't bring any wood. It was actually warm because it was the sun was beating off the, the glacier. We had goggles on so we didn't get snow blind. And I would make it to base camp uh, as the sun is setting. And, and we knew that it was going to be a full moon that night. So we figured we could walk back hours and hours on this the Kumbu Glacier from base camp. And there was nobody at base camp. It's completely empty. Now there's, you know, tents and everything all year round with all the expeditions that go. So I'm walking back on the glacier under the full moon. And it was like being on another planet. And I remember having this sensation that inside I was, I felt as empty as the, the glacier that stretched out as far as I could see in every direction. And I just, I'd had all these adventures, I'd had all these experiences, I'd, I'd done everything I could think of, you know, to make my life meaningful and interesting, and, and, but it was clear that I had not found what I was looking for, and I, and I had no thought of Jesus. In fact, if anything, I was, I, I probably was less inclined than anything else, you know, to be thinking that, you know, Jesus is, is the answer. And uh, so I, I guess I'm, I'm saying all this to say that I wasn't looking uh, to become a follower of Jesus. I mean, if anything, I was going in the other direction. And it, it, when you say, you know, I was a seeker, but God was seeking me, I actually had an experience at the very end of my stay in India. I, I was in Nepal for about a year, came back into India. And I was staying in this flea bag hotel in Delhi. I had virtually no money. I wanted to try to extend my visa, though, to stay even longer. And I'm, I'm in this room on the roof of this hotel, if you could call it a hotel. I mean, it was just a dump. And it was a box of a room with just a cot, an end table, and a bare light bulb. And I'm sitting on my cot practicing this meditation technique that I had just learned. I'm still trying to find some answer. You know, I don't want to come back to the States empty-handed. I went to India. I have to have something I found there, you know. So I'm sitting on this cot, and uh, all of a sudden I open my eyes, and the mid-vertical and top horizontal board of the door of this room became lightly illuminated in the form of a cross. And I'm in the middle of India, so there's nothing Christian about the environment. And I just have this thought, it's, it's Jesus. Jesus is the way. And the cross receded, and, and I could hear all the street noise again, the rickshaw bells and Indian music on cassette tapes, and I'm back in India. And then just a few days later, I come back to New York and find my whole family reading the Bible and telling me about Jesus. So, you know, it was a very dramatic intervention in my life of, of God, you know, showing me that, you know, he was pursuing me. And, and I, I guess you really can't, um, you, you really can't just tell someone that, um, believe these certain things, you know, and your life will be different. You know, uh, you really have to have an experience of the reality of God, that God really does exist. And, and, that, and you have to believe certain things that, that the Bible talks about, that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And there's many scriptures that God used to convince me that that was true. 
Um, and I, I had another ex experience um, when I finally surrendered my life to Christ. I ended up living in this brownstone in Brooklyn, not far from where I was born, even though I hadn't lived in New York in years. And I was working at a shipyard, very physical, difficult job. And I'd been working there for several months and I was a Christian, you know, I was reading the Bible, Bible studies, but I hadn't really had much of a, an experience of God being real. You know, I just like, okay, I'm going to be a Christian. I want to serve Jesus. And, and I came back at, from the shipyard one night, exhausted, and I cl climbed up to the fourth floor of this brownstone and threw myself on the floor of the brown. Uh, there was a prayer room that we had with no furniture, just pillows. So I threw myself on the floor of the prayer room and I just began literally crying, God, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I'm living in this, it was really kind of a ghetto in Brooklyn at the time, working at this shipyard. I, I don't know where this is leading. And I felt the presence of God come into the prayer room like I'd never experienced it before. Like I felt pressure on my body and, and like a big blanket was being put on top of me. And I heard not audibly, but in my heart, Joseph, 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 I love you, Joseph. I love you, Joseph. I love you, I love you, I love you. And I'm crying still in awe that I'm experiencing the, God's presence. And then I hear this voice internally, not audibly, and my will for your life is that you be a servant. And I love you, I love you, I love you. And this will always be my will for your life. And so I, I share that just to say that it's very, I think it's vitally important for, even if they don't have as dramatic an ex experience as the ones I'm mentioning, seeing across in India or feeling God's presence in this prayer room, you know, that you reach a point where you believe God, maybe God exists. <laughs> there really is a living God that, and that he created you. The Bible says that we're knit together in our mother's womb. Every day ordained for us was written in God's book before one of them came to be. And in Ephesians 2.10, it says we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you, I began to believe those things about myself, that God loved me, that he existed, that he had a plan for my life, good works prepared in advance, every day ordained for me, written in this book. I began to be really believe those things. And, and not, so I went beyond just, hey, I want to be a Christian and go to church on Sunday. You know, no, I want to go in all the way. You know, I want, to, I want to surrender my life without conditions, offer my body, as it says in the scripture, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, offer my body as a living sacrifice to God. Uh, and then it goes on to say, then you will know what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. If it's a total surrender, God, I'm yours, you know, guide me into your plan for my life. I believe there is one. I believe you exist, and I believe you have a plan for me, and I want to trust you, no strings attached, to guide me into that plan. So I think there has to be a radical surrender, you know, to, to God. There's no dipping your toe in. Not, not really. I mean, I think if, if you do that, I think there's lots of people that go to church that are, you know, frustrated. They, you know, they don't really have a deep sense of fulfillment or joy or a sense that they're living a meaningful life. You know, they're maybe just going through the motions, you know, of 
filing in and out of the building every week and hearing a message and you know but i think the only way that you discover this plan that god has is if you do uh go in all the way you know no can no strings attached god i'm yours and then it's, it's not like something miraculously happens overnight i mean i had to put one foot in the front of the other for years uh, i didn't start out you know doing what i'm doing today you know, I worked in the shipyard for nine months, you know. I had a vinyl repair business in upstate New York for two years. That's where I met my wife. And uh, I did a variety of different things. But all along the way, I was living from this place of, God, you exist. God, you love me. God, you have a plan for my life. I trust you. I trust you to unfold that plan in your perfect time. And then over the years, I, I, I experienced God opening doors and me being available to go through them. And it's like he's trying to write a story, you know, through each of our lives. And we just have to position ourselves to cooperate with him and let him unfold his story through our lives. Yeah, that's something something that you said there doesn't happen overnight. I definitely can res resonates with me. And I think that there's a there's a lot of um, one thing that I look at from your story is that you kept seeking, you kept traveling you explored i think the more dangerous situation are the people that it's almost like it's a good thing you had such an overbearing dad uh because had you just like yeah how how scary is it to think of what if you would have just ended up being a lawyer and kind of rolled through that for who knows how many years right instead of basically this the you you made a radical move in exploring to like an extent that I've never heard or seen someone explore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I often hear that, but you know, I, I actually was just with a guy, uh, a week or so ago and, uh, was having coffee with him and he had sold this business. He's probably in his, I think he's 48. And three years ago when he was 45, he sold this business, uh, that he had started. And he said, I never have to work another day in my life and he looked out the window of the coffee shop and said there's my tesla over there and, uh and, but he he really was coming from this place of now what you know what you know what do i what's what am i supposed to do with my life you know um you know i came across an interesting uh, uh someone was sharing this with me um there was a, I think it was a Christian psychologist back in the 1950s who was trying to help missionaries who had experienced burnout and they'd been on the mission field. So this can happen to Christians and even people in ministry. And so he came up with what he called the works syndrome and the grace syndrome. And he describes the work syndrome as starting out with achievement. You think you have to do certain things. Um, accomplish something in life you know, and whether it's you know build a, a career and, and that leads to you're hoping it will lead to a sense of significance if i can achieve certain things i can I can, be, I can have a life that's significant and then that goes on to what he called sustenance where okay i have everything i need um to keep to have a full life and then eventually, after you've achieved certain things and it becomes quote unquote significant, you experience acceptance. 
So everybody's looking for love. Everybody wants approval. Everybody wants that. And that's what he calls the work syndrome, starting out with achievement, ending up with acceptance. He said the grace syndrome is you start out with acceptance. You start out with the confidence that you're loved, that God loves you. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. You know, when Jesus was baptized, you know, the Holy Spirit came down and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he started his ministry. You know, so he had a foundation of, of acceptance and love and approval. And then it goes, and then from that you go on, this is the grace syndrome now, you go on to having a sense of significance. I'm a child of God, God loves me. And then you have the sustenance you need to keep moving forward in your life. And then you end up with achievement because you've been set free to, to do things for others. And that would fall in the category of achievement. Uh, but you have the sustenance to keep going. You're not going to burn out. You don't end up feeling, what did I do with my life? You know, you've been set free to be a blessing to other people. And just like when I heard God say to me, my will for your life is that you'll be a servant. I was still such a new Christ follower. That did not sound attractive at all to me. <laughs> you know, I was crying with the sense of, oh, I feel the presence of God in this prayer room, but then he tells me I'm going to be a servant, and this will always be my will for your life. And I felt like I was looking in this bottomless pit, you know, are you kidding? I, I, don't, I never graduate from being a servant, you know. And But what I've discovered now over the years is, wow, what a joy, you know, to no longer be that totally self-centered person. What do I got to do to make myself happy and find fulfillment for myself, you know? to just being set free by the love of God, to be able to have something to give to others and, and be concerned about what can I do to, to uh, uh, see others reach their full potential and be all that God made them to be. And, and that's really the heart behind Forward Edge. And, you know, it's, I'm so grateful, like you said, that I didn't just stay on that conveyor belt to law school. <laughs> And end up, you know, maybe the guy, like the guy that sold his business and he's got, never has to work again. He's got the Tesla, but you know, what do I do with my life now? I feel like potentially if, and this might be a projection onto your story, but the, one of the most significant and amazing points in your story from my perspective was when you were in that apartment deciding whether or not you were going to go to law school and you made that tiny shift you're like, eh, not going to go, which that I, I mean, obviously there was a number of other like critical, um, almost like a multiple conversions that you went through, but I don't think any of it starts without that moment. And I don't know if you would point to a different, a different, uh, thing that led up to even that moment of when you actually broke off the conveyor belt and said, I, I want to, I think I need to do something different or there was that urging um, or that little whisper of like, you know, and may, that, is that God working in that moment to just get your attention just enough to have you start seeking elsewhere? Because he knows eventually you'll come around as long as he can get you out of that. Well, one thing that comes to mind, uh, I used to think, especially when I was a young Christ follower, you know, in my 20s and even into my 30s, you know, that somehow, you know, God got involved in my life after I said, okay, I want to, I, I want to be a Christian. <laughs> but the reality is God's involved in all of our lives from the beginning all the way through, 
you know, whether we're going to church or not going to church, whether we believe God in God, that there is a God or there isn't a God, you know, I believe God is there. God is present in our lives and working in our lives all the time. So I have no problem believing that even that decision in that London flat to not go to law school was something, you know, that uh, maybe God prompted me to do that allowed his plan to unfold in my life. I had another experience speaking of God's intervention. Uh, and uh, I actually uh, came up with a term uh, that uh, I wrote another book around this concept that I call serendestiny. And uh, most people know what serendipity is. And Webster defines that as the phenomenon of experiencing things not anticipated or sought for, usually pleasant surprises. And I define serendestiny as the phenomenon of discovering uh, God's will or discovering one's destiny by responding with faith and obedience to God-ordained circumstances not anticipated or sought for. And if I look back on my life, and I think most people look back on their life, you know, my life didn't unfold because I sat down with a plan and worked the plan and it all happened the way I, I planned it, you know. Uh, you know, God is always intervening in all of our lives in ways we don't anticipate or sometimes ways we don't welcome. And, and how we respond, you know, to those opportunities really determines the outcome of our lives. And, uh, and that, that can happen, you know, before we become a Christ follower or after, and it does happen, you know, after for sure. And, and that's more how God's plan for me has unfolded. It hasn't been me mapping it out and making it happen. And uh, there's many examples of that I could, I could, I could share with you. Um, I, yeah, I guess I don't know if you have a – before we – I was going to dive into forward edge stuff, but what do you have a specific story that um, – to illustrate that? Ah, uh, yes. Um, and it, it does sort of relate at the same time to – this idea of total surrender, you know, not just dipping your toe in, but go going all the way. Uh, I was, Forward Edge had actually already begun. This would have been the 19, late 1980s, early 90s. Uh, so I've been doing it for almost 10 years. But we were still legally a part of this church planning ministry that I had originally joined when I first became a, a follower of Christ. And it was still, it was called Forward Edge, but we were Gospel Outreach, which is the name of this church planning ministry, doing business as Forward Edge, DBA, Forward Edge International. And I was feeling like, like God was leading me to disconnect from the church planning ministry and form my own 501c3 organization and form our own board of directors. And, but it was a very scary decision for me to make because I, I didn't know if, uh, the leaders of the church planning ministry would say, well, that's fine if you want to leave gospel outreach, but we're going to keep Forward Edge. It's legally a ministry of Forward Edge. And uh, so I was very uh, uh, nervous about that. And uh, I ended up, uh, and I can't get into the details, but I, I ended up having this dream, a very vivid dream that I really believed was from God. Uh, and Right the next morning after I had the dream, I, I flew to Kansas City to go to this conference. And uh, several thousand people were there. 
and I entered the the building where the conference was happening, and there was this beautiful worship, and and I was still wrestling with this decision: Do I go to the leaders of this church? But I'm going to tell tell them I believe God's calling me out of this, and I wanted to continue to do what I was doing with Forward Edge, and and I remember just kneeling down as soon as I entered the auditorium, thousands of people, beautiful worship, and just saying, God, I just want your will for my life, you know, whatever that is, and I'm just willing to do it. And I sat down, and the guy came up to give the message, and it was from Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it talks about offer your bodies as a, a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service of worship, and then you will know what, what the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God is for your life. And I'd already heard the scripture, I'd even taught on that, but it was like really speaking to me about letting go uh, of everything I was afraid of. So I pictured in my mind, uh, and, I, and I believe this is the Holy Spirit working, so it's a, it's a kind of intervention, and it's me responding with faith and, and, and obedience to what the Holy Spirit was doing in that moment. So I saw in my mind me walking to the foot of a cross and taking everything I was the most afraid of losing, uh, my ministry, my salary, my home, my reputation, and bending down and putting all of that at the foot of the cross, then standing up, turning around, and walking away. And and being willing to let all of that go, if that's what I needed to do to keep moving forward into God's plan for my life. And it ended up that everything totally worked out. I was blessed to, to, to relocate actually from California to the Portland area with Forward Edge. And God's really blessed the ministry since then. But, you know, there's just those crossroads along the way, you know, where uh, we really have to be open to whatever God wants for us. And we, we have to be willing to say yes, you know, however scary or unknown the future looks. In fact, the word forward edge, people sometimes ask, where did that come from, the name forward edge? And the way we define that is when God is speaking to you or prompting you in a certain way, and you respond with faith and obedience, even though you don't know what lies ahead, then you're stepping onto the forward edge of life. And that's where you discover in a deeper way who God is, who you are, and what he can do through you. So we always have to be willing to kind of step into the unknown and uncharted territories. It's like Abraham, the father of our faith. You know, go to a land that you've never been to before and just trust me. And those kinds of moments in time happen over and over and over. You know, if we want to stay alive and if we want to fully live the story God's trying to write to our lives. So I have to, the, those times that you're describing of um, feeling very, feeling like a very clear idea or picture in your mind of, um, what you're supposed to do or like, you know, giving up all of the things that you are most afraid of losing. Mm -hmm. um, I guess what that's making me feel is that I, I do think that I could, you know, initially if someone were to say, can you tell me a time of when God spoke to you? I probably like I, I'm, I, I constantly am a cynic in I'm very good at justifying away miracles and uh -huh. God speaking to me as mm -hmm. like, um, you know, reasoning it out or, or trying to um, give a, you know, secular explanation for something, mm -hmm. which, but at the same time, if someone said, Chris, do you believe in miracles? I'd be like, oh, absolutely. But the, but the reality is if I'm honest with how, who I am today, rarely will I acknowledge that I, that something is a miracle, if that makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so my question is, I feel like I've had times where it's like, this is what, this is what I'm supposed to do. Or I, I have this idea of what I'm supposed to do. I don't know if I would say certain times I'm definitely in, you know, prayer, prayerful settings or like a retreat or something. But mm-hmm. how do I know that that's actually um, something that I should act on? Or, or how do I, um, I guess, like, what's the action step? Because in that situation, you felt that. But did you have periods immediately following of doubt? Or is there anything that you can do to, um, I guess, is the answer just pray more? Like, what do you do? And you know what I'm saying? Or have you ever mm-hmm. thought about that in your own life? Yeah, you know, I, I think about all this a lot, you know. And one one of the things that I I, I think is important to realize, like, there's no there's no formula you know, my journey is not going to be your journey or how, how things play out for me. Isn't it going to be exactly how they play out for you? And uh, I guess there's moments in all our lives where we come, we come to the end of ourselves. You know, it's kind of a place of desperation, you know, where we're, you know, we, we, we desperately need God <laughs> and, or, or we need something. <laughs> And, and we always have that option, you know, am I going to really turn to God and trust God and cry out to God and, and re-surrender my life to God in that moment, or am I going to check out? Am I going to just take my life back? You know, this isn't working. I'm just going to figure it out, you know, on my own or, or tough it through. Or, uh, and I, when I've encountered a revelation or a sense of, you know, direction, guidance, where I have peace, it's been when I've gone to God in those moments of desperation, when I'm at the end of myself and I'm willing to do whatever. That's the other thing, you know, like, I like, it, like that moment I just described, you know, I, I, it wasn't enough for me to say, God, I want to do your will for my life, but I'm going to hold on to all these things, you know, <laughs> you're not getting this, you know, <laughs> I, I, I had to be willing to, I'm willing to do whatever. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm yours, God. And you come to those moments again and again and again. And I think I find in my experience, it's often when we're desperate, you know, we, we, we recognize our need for something more or, and, uh, and I, I find that God has responded, you know, when I've come sincerely without conditions uh, and then I watch what happens next, (laughs) you know, Mm. and, uh, and God, God shows up, you know, and, you end up with this story where you look back and you can say, look what God did. Look what God did. Look what God did. And then he gets all the glory. You know, it's not like you could ever say, look what I did, you know, with my life. Uh, look what God did. And so I don't know. That sound, may sound pretty abstract in general, but, you know, that's how it's worked for me. Mm. So if we jump into, I definitely want to uh, spend some time talking about Forward Edge in particular. And I guess the... I'd love to have you share some stories. I know there you probably could tell share some stories about actual like, you know, specific put put some names and faces to this idea of what you guys are doing instead of um, you know, just saying we help people in Nicaragua or whatever. Um, yeah. but I'll start out by saying I noticed on your website that um and I'm summarizing this, but your vision for Forward Edge is to see Everyone that is involved in Forward Edge discover discovering and pursuing God's plan for their lives. 
really the the uh, driving conviction behind Forward Edge from the very beginning has been this belief that God wants to use every person in a unique and significant way to contribute to his purposes in the world. Uh, as I said earlier, created by Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that applies to everybody. So when we started mobilizing people on these mission trips, we weren't really just wanting to send people to the quote-unquote mission field so they could see what cross-cultural ministry was like, and maybe God would call them to be missionaries, long-term missionaries. That really was not the heart behind. It was really getting people out of their comfort zone, out of the pews if they're a churchgoer, into a whole new environment, you know, where they could hear God's call in their life in a whole new way, be because maybe they were doing things they'd never done before. You know, they were, God was using them in ways they'd never experienced. And their faith level would go up, and they started to really believe, hey, maybe God can use me you know, beyond just going to church every Sunday. And uh, so that was the heart behind Forward Edge in the beginning. In fact, I was praying about being a missionary myself and going back to Nepal with a, with a church planning team. Right, right after Forward Edge started, I had a group of people were praying together and, and Forward Edge was just starting. I was doing it on the side. I think we'd maybe sent two or three teams up to, at that point. And I went to the the head of the church planning ministry, who was a friend of mine, and told him you know, what was going on with me. And he told me this story about a man with a bucket of water approaching a building engulfed in flames. And next to the building was a row of sleeping firemen. And the man had to decide whether to throw his bucket of water on the building or on the firemen. And God used that story to encourage me to keep pursuing forward edge. Going, going to Nepal would have been like me taking the bucket of water and throwing it on the building. And so... You know, the heart behind Forward Edge from the beginning, mobilize people, give them opportunities to hear the call of God in, in their lives so that they'll be motivated to, you know, pursue God's plan for them. So what's happened now over the years as God has, has uh, led Forward Edge, uh, we, and, and these are all, I can tell you how all this stuff happened. It was all interventions of God. It was God opening different doors. It was serendestiny. <laughs> you know, we didn't, we weren't planning certain things, you know, God just, you know, prompted us to get involved. So one example specifically in Nicaragua, where we had been sending these mission teams going back to the mid eighties, one of our staff down there started visiting the garbage dump, the main garbage dump in Managua, Nicaragua. And there's, there were thousands of people living in this garbage dump. And it was just a horrific environment with buzzards flying overhead and huge mounds of, of garbage, some of them burning and the smells were unbelievable. Animals just, you know, scavenging through the garbage. People living in these shacks, just scraps of, of metal and wood that they got from the garbage. And the worst thing about it, our staff member discovered, her name was Gloria, was that young girls, as young as nine years old, were being sold to the truck drivers who brought in the garbage uh, in exchange for having first access to the best garbage. So they're basically being prostituted out, in some cases by their own mothers. And so she heard this and you know, was horrified and shared with me and others. And long story short, we ended up uh, starting, we bought some property and we started this village, we call it Via Esperanza, Hope Village. And we started getting girls out of the garbage dump. 
This was 2008 is when we first opened the doors of Via Esperanza, Hope Village. And what we're experiencing now are girls who were living in this garbage dump graduating from college. Wow. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, studying medicine, uh, business, uh, and, and genuinely following Jesus. You know, they, they, they brought Jesus into their lives and, and trusted him. And, and uh, so we've seen just dramatic transformation. So we've gone from like providing opportunities for people going on these mission trips to hear the call of God and, and fulfill God's plan for their life to now working with these vulnerable children in Nicaragua and other places, believing the same thing about them. You know, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. You know, so we want to remove the obstacles, you know, all the things that go along with extreme poverty and abuse and neglect so that they can hear the call of God on their lives and pursue his plan and purposes for them. And we're starting to see that happen over and over and over. That's I just have to say that um, I can't I just can't believe I feel like when you're describing that, and I would imagine this is the reaction to most, this is one of the reasons why you probably say it's a good thing to get out and see the world and travel or go on a mission. It doesn't even mm -hmm. sound like you're describing Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it was a very hellish environment, that garbage dump. And, and uh, yeah. And I guess I would also, I say like, is there anything, like, is that legal to do what they're doing? Or well, is it kind you know, of all it, under the radar and there's nothing that the... Well, what, what ended up happening, Chris, is because people like us were starting to get into the dump and building relationships with these families and the girls and, and rescuing some of them out of the garbage dump, um, the government became aware of what we were doing. And they, they definitely had tried to keep that whole situation in the dump under the rug, you know. <laughs> Uh, they didn't want a lot of people to know about it. So they became in, in, increasingly embarrassed that people in their country were living in those conditions. And what actually happened is the government of, of Spain uh, donated millions of dollars to convert the garbage dump into a recycling center. So they relocated all these people in the dump. Uh, this is several years after the, our, our, our program started, the Village of Hope. They relocated them within walking distance of the garbage dump, and some of them got jobs working in this recycling plant. Uh, they have a whole, you know, conveyor belts, and it's it's a much better situation. At the same time, there's still the similar things happening where older men are preying on young girls that now live in this community, which are just rows of cinder block homes right next to each other. Um, a lot of drug abuse and and men that are not not employed some people have jobs not everybody does and there are still young girls you know that are being victimized so you know we're, we're continually bringing more girls into our program there and doing other things in nicaragua as well mm. so if um one thought that i and this is something that i i'm not sure how many other people feel this the idea of being um a missionary or, or in ministry and having to ask or seek for funding from and again the worldly this is definitely something that i struggle with uh seek funding from the people that were quote successful um how do you did you ever struggle with 
basically your ego or your pride of, I know I'm being called oh, to be a servant, God, but how am I like, I, I don't want to basically spend the rest of my life asking for donations to do your will. <laughs> yeah. Well, I <laughs> absolutely have struggled. I, you know, I, I would have never, ever imagined that I would have to be in the position of raising money. <laughs> I remember soon after I became a, a, a Christian, uh, the, I was on the East Coast. I was back in New York in the headquarters of this church planning ministry in California. And the guy who started the church planning ministry was visiting. I'd, I had never met him before. And I was so excited, you know, to hear what he was going to be sharing about. And his message had a lot to do with money <laughs> and how we, we really can't do anything, you know, to bring change in the world if we don't have resources, if we don't have funds. And I was like so disappointed, you know, with, with that message. And then as God's unfolded, you know, his plan for me, you know, again, it's not me figuring things out and making things happen. It's just one step in front of the other. And, and walking into the, the Bible says, you know, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord, you know, so you just take these steps after steps after steps. And then I realized, okay, you know, God's led me into this ministry. We're doing his work. And the only way this is going to happen is if we invite other people to be a part of it through their giving. And the one thing I've realized over the years, Chris, is that, you know, we're not just taking money from people. You know, we're giving them opportunities to add meaning to their lives, mm. you know, that they, they get to, to use the resources they have. I think there's a lot of people, you know, that are looking for meaning and purpose in their lives. And, and sometimes what they feel is guilt. I have all this stuff, uh, but I want to, you know, live for some higher purpose. Uh, but I don't know even know where to begin. I'm so busy. I, I, you know, I don't even know how to go about it. And so we're providing opportunities for them to to have higher purpose, to to add meaning to their life, and and there's joy and fulfillment that comes from that, you know. So we're I think we're really blessing the people that by just giving them opportunities to be a part of what God's doing through our little organization, you know. And there's many other ways people can give that are meaningful, and 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 it's it's a blessing for the giver. Mm. You know, it's, it's not just taking something. So it's more of you still can, it still can be viewed as a, a transaction just like in business, I guess. And maybe that's cheapening what you guys are doing. I'm just trying to think again, from the ego side, you're still giving a significant amount back in, in fulfillment to these people. It's not like you're a beggar on the side of the street that is, you know, receiving and then going on the way and, and there's nothing. Yeah. And, I, and I'm also obviously not asking for myself. Right. Right. You know, right. That's the other thing that, that keeps me going, you know, is I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, asking, you know, for people to give, to help meet the needs that we're addressing. Right. It's advocating you know, for the more, the people yeah. that need it. And, yeah. And frankly, over the years, you know, one of the things that a lot of people working in nonprofit organizations, you know, they're, they're it's a trade off. You know, you're saying I could do something else and make a lot more money, <laughs> you know, or I could do what I believe God's calling me to do and live a simpler life. And and that's what that's what I had to do, really. You know, we've always had a very simple lifestyle. I think my travels in the third world, developing world, seeing how most of the world lives and, and also realizing myself how little I actually need you know, mm. to live, you know, I'm content, you know, with a house that's not a lot of square footage, a ranch home, 
basic cars. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I'm good, you know, with that and have been over the years. And God's always taken care of me. So we're not getting rich doing what we're doing. And and the money that we're raising really is going to the need, you know, 85 cents out of a dollar, you know, with Forward Edge goes directly to the need. Mm. Cause, and this is, this is just me being very honest with a personal struggle I have of that. The desires that I have or the, feel, the times that I feel like I'm being called into various types of ministry or giving back. Honestly, the, one of the, the, the strangest things that I wrestle with is basically knowing that if I did go all in to ministry, I would mm -hmm. no longer like I feel I feel guilty or I would feel guilty, you know, having my vacation house on Lake Coeur d'Alene or having my, you know, boat and going on ski trips and all the stuff that's just like things that I want, you know, getting a Tesla, um, you know, traveling and seeing the world, being able to have to make enough to like provide for our future kids and whatnot. But I, for some reason, I, again, I don't know if I'm just, you know, in my own world, I would imagine that some other people struggle with this as well. But basically what I'm saying is I have a hard time saying I will go into ministry because that means that I can't have luxury. And then yeah. I, you know, the all on the alternative, I sit and say, Oh, I could make money. And if I make the money through business, somehow like psychologically now all of that luxury is okay even though theoretically i could be giving that to ministry which i want to support anyways i don't know if that makes any sense or if you know yeah, what I'm talking it makes about. It ma yeah it makes total sense I, one thing that comes to mind is sometimes we have a very narrow definition of what ministry is you know we say well ministry is what i'm doing you know or what a pastor's doing or you know quote unquote full-time ministry and, and again, I think God's plan for everybody is that, that we discover, you know, his, his plan and purpose for our life. And in some cases, that can mean creating wealth <laughs> and, and wealth that can be stewarded and used to, to further the kingdom of God. I mean, we have a, a billionaire couple <laughs> that are major donors to Forward Edge and help support everything we're doing. And they support many other ministries. And they don't have a lavish lifestyle. They have a nice home. I've been to their home. Uh, it's a nice home. Uh, but they are stewards. They recognize God's given them these resources. You know, they, they also recognize that they don't need seven cars and, you know, seven homes. I mean, they, they even though they could have all that, right. <laughs> you know, they choose to, to live in such a way that they're comfortable, their needs are met. Uh, but they have enough to give, you know, that that's a part of their lifestyle. That's a, that's a part of how their ministry mm. and how God uses them. So it's not a right or wrong. It has to look like this or has to look like that. I mean, the, the, the possibilities of what ministry could look like are endless in my mind. I mean, it's just God is so creative. He's the creator. And he makes each one of us unique with certain giftings. And, and he wants to free us from guilt you know, and, and condemnation and all that stuff. You know, we just need to have some confidence that this is God's will for me. I have a peace about it. 
but I also want to participate in what he's doing in the world. And, and if you're wealthy and have some resources, you know, make that available, you know, in some way that you feel good about to further God's work in the world, make the world a better place or advance the kingdom of God, however you want to put it. And I think that's a responsibility in a ministry that some people have. So if someone's interested in getting involved in, um, how, how hard is it for anyone listening that wants to either reach out to you directly or to the work that you guys are doing in forward edge? First of all, is that, I'm assuming that's something that you guys are always open to. Um, but what do you, what do you, what do you have to say about, um, you know, telling people how they can get in contact with you? Well, you, you know, I would encourage people to go to our website, which is just forwardedge.org, O-R-G, F-O-R-W-A-R-D-E-D-G-E.org, forwardedge.org. And you'll see a lot of videos on there and, you know, a lot of good information about what God's doing through Forward Edge. And then there's some really easy entry points. You can sponsor a child in one of the countries I mentioned, Nicaragua, Mexico, Haiti, Cuba, or Kenya, $38 a month. You can do that. Or you could serve on one of our short-term volunteer teams and see firsthand the different programs that we have in those countries. Um, uh, often people go on uh, groups from their church or school. We have teams that go from George Fox and Whitworth and other colleges, but most of the teams come from churches all across the country. But even as an individual, you know, you can contact us and ask if you can join one of the teams that we send out. Uh, and the one of the cool things about Forward Edge, which is different than much larger organizations that have child sponsorship programs, is you can sponsor a child and actually go and meet the child. You know, you could go on one of our, our mission oh, wow. trips and, and actually meet your child and then build a relationship with the child through correspondence and other ways. Um, so those are great entry points, sponsorship or serving on, on a volunteer team. Uh, every year or two, we have a banquet in Portland, and, and now we're starting uh, annual banquets in Seattle and New York on Long Island. But for over 20 years, we've had a, a banquet in October at the Red Lion uh, in Portland, and we have five to 600 people that come every year. And many times, that's the first exposure people have to Forward Edge. And for years, we've brought one of the girls from Nicaragua to tell her story as well as bringing uh, other people from other countries. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a great night. And that's, uh, I think this year it's October 20th at the Red Lion. Nice, okay. I'll make sure to include those details in the show notes. Um, do you have any um, book recommendations? Do you read a lot? I read a lot and I, it's really hard for me. I know you were wondering about maybe three book recommendations and course i would recommend my book <laughs> <laughs> message in a body is one and the best story of your life is another and you can get that at our website forwardedge.org but the other books i listed uh my utmost for his highest which is really a devotional by a man named oswald chambers and it's the kind of book that you could you be in it every day because it's every day you know every day of the year there's a, a very insightful devotional by Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. Another book is called Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen, N-O-U-W-E-N. And, and in that book, it really talks about the importance of 
experiencing the reality that we're the, we're children of God, we're God's beloved. He loves us, you know, and that ha needs to really be the foundation of our life. We want to be used by God. And then another book is called The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. The Ragamuffin Gospel. And that really talks about how God just uses ordinary people, imperfect, flawed human beings, you know, ragamuffins, you know. And, uh, and, and that's another book I would recommend. And then I added a fourth. It's just it's called Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And in that book, it's built around the premise that God is always at work in the world around us. He's already working, and that he's always inviting us to join him in what he's doing in the world around us. So those are, those mm. are great books. And then, um, I don't know, I always, this is just my own personal um, favorite, because I like movies, especially good ones that Me people too. haven't heard of. Um, but favorite yeah. movie of all time, it can be just purely entertainment, funny, adventure, whatever it is. But what is your favorite movie of all time? Yeah, I, I am a movie nut too. I've seen a lot of movies. I love movies. I don't know if it's hard to answer the favorite of all time. Uh, but so again, I got a couple here. So Shawshank Redemption is a movie that I, I, I like and could watch and have watched more than once. Uh, there's a movie called Shadowlands which is the story of C.S. Lewis and Anthony Hopkins stars in that movie. Uh, I love that movie. And then going back from when I was a little kid, uh, I would watch A Christmas Carol, but not, not the more recent versions, but w one that was made in the mm -hmm. 1930s with a guy named Alistair Sims. Sims. A, Christmas, a Christmas Carol with Alistair Sims, who actually got to see live in the theater in London when I was an exchange student before he died in 1969. I loved him. He's a great actor. And then one last one, Babette's Feast, which is a foreign film with subtitles. Babette's Feast. It's mm. a great movie. Awesome. Yeah. Did you know the Shawshank Redemption? I'm a big IMDb person. I don't know if you've heard of that site. They just rank no. movies and provide a bunch of information on them. Um, IMDb has Shawshank Redemption as the number one movie ever. Really? So you have good good taste. It's got like a oh. 9.3 out of 10 rating. Oh, cool. Have you seen it? Do I have, like it? yeah. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah. I mean, there's so many movies. It's hard to nail it down to just a few, but I like a lot, a lot of movies. <laughs> so now, just, just as we uh, wrap things up, one thing I like to do is uh, I just have 10 totally random questions um, called rapid fire questions. You don't have to provide a justification to your answer. It could be one word. You can just say, stay, uh, make a statement. Um, but I've got 10 here that are, you know, just totally, some of them, I just, uh, I have a list of like 250 and I just randomly select 10 and, and ask okay. you. So, um, do you always wear a seatbelt? Uh, yes. What do you do for working out? You know, at this point in my life, I'm 69, so I play golf and I walk. When I, when I play, I don't use the cart. Nice. Favorite flower? You know, I love. I just love wildflowers. If I have to say, well, and we grow. We have a little patch of wildflowers and and on our property. Yep. Yeah. Um, last band or artist that you listen to? Well, I, I think I just listened to James Taylor this morning, so I'll put him down there. Nice. You back in uh, in your travels in Europe, you were quite the music junkie, right? Yes. Yeah, I was. I, uh, James Taylor had just come out with his first album, and back then, Led Zeppelin had come out, and I, I went to uh, 
a couple of different festivals in, in England at the Isle of Wight and heard Jimi Hendrix play the Star Spangled Banner right before he died. Wow. Bob Dylan and the Beatles were backstage and, and a list of Joni Mitchell, lots of other artists at that time were performing at these festivals. And yeah. What was it? What would, do you remember what the last concert that you went to was? Uh, I haven't gone to much, but we just bought tickets to go, to go see James Taylor and Bonnie Raitt oh, nice. <laughs> at the Moda Center. So we'll probably do that. Have you done anything spontaneous lately? Gosh, these are hard questions, Chris. Uh, I said yes to doing this podcast. There you go. <laughs> I'll take that one. What, who's the last person you went to dinner with? Oh, my wife. You know, I just we just celebrated our forty-first wedding anniversary last Monday. So, so we went out to dinner. And two more. Uh, what are you currently learning? Uh, I'm learning that in order to love people, I. I have to be free from judgment of mm. of people. Yeah. Well, that is that interesting ties into the last question, which is, what do you think of people with tattoos? Oh, I think it's fine. <laughs> uh, I go. Did you to get a, any tattoos on your travels? You know, I came so close. This was this this was right before tattoos, where everybody had tattoos, and I, I almost got. I don't know if you know what an ohm sign is. Uh-huh. And I almost got that on my hand in Kathmandu when I was there, but decided not to do it. But uh, I'll, I'll t can I end with one quick story? Mm -hmm. If you edit, edit this out, speaking, it reminds you of this with tattoos. So I'd been traveling for years, India and Nepal. I come back to New York. I'm not a Christian. I, but I end up being encouraged to visit this brownstone in Brooklyn where a church planning team had come from California. And you got to meet these people. Again, my family had all been become Christians and reading the Bible. So I go to this brownstone and I've got this full beard, really long hair. I have a Tibetan monk's robe that had been tailored into a jacket with the buttons on the side and the stand-up collar lined with wolf fur and handmade moccasins and turquoise and coral earring like the Tibetan men wear. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I got this whole outfit on and I, I'm sitting on the floor of this brownstone on the ground floor. They're having a Bible study and every, all this couches and chairs are again, you know, and, uh, and there's this Scottish guy who's sharing a message. I go up to him right after the message and get into sort of this intellectual debate, you know, how could Jesus be the only way? And, you know, all roads lead to the same place. And, and as I'm talking to him at the corner of my eye, I see this very large man sitting on a couch with these giant tattoos on his shoulders. Literally, they were like, anchors you know and back then this was 1973 or 4 uh tattoos were more less common than they are now so anyway this guy's staring at me he's got his sleeves rolled up and and he's just staring at me and i finally after i'm done talking to the preacher i go walk up, up to him and sort of awkwardly into hey my name's joseph and he's got his arms folded his big tattoos and he goes you know this this is brooklyn so he had a very thick brooklyn accent he said you know something i've been wanting to ask you and, and I said, oh, what's that? He said, why don't you just get off your trip? <laughs> he says, because <laughs> I had this whole costume on, you know, and I, I, I knew he was not impressed with anything about that and that he just saw right through me. So I felt like I was standing naked in front of this guy. And, and I think I just muttered something like, oh, okay, well, I'll 
I'll give that some thought. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so many people in the world that could say that and get have away that, with that um, impact. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What are you supposed to say back? Uh, It was not an intellectual argument, but it spoke to me. (laughs) (laughs) It was God speaking again. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time, Joe. Um, Do you have, uh, I don't know if you want to give out your email or not, or a way to contact you? Absolutely. It's just joseph at forwardedge.org. So just joseph at forwardedge.org. Awesome. Well, thanks, and we will. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm excited to uh, share this with everyone, and uh, hopefully, there's some, um, some nuggets in here for for others to take away in their own journey of uh, self discovery and and all that. Well, thanks for providing the opportunity, uh, for not just for me, but for the listeners. So appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Pursuit of Purpose. As always, you can check out the show notes in the description on the podcast or visit my website, chriskiefer.net, to find any other relevant links or information that was discussed on the show. We'll see you next time. You are listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people.